This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Welcome to the New Books Network. Dear New Books Network listener, my name is Gordon Caddick, and you usually hear me on the Darts and Letters feed. Well, our team has created a new podcast. It is called Academic Edgelords. Academic Edgelords is a scholarly podcast about scholarly provocateurs. On Academic Edgelords, we look at the most contentious and controversial ideas coming out of academia. This is a panel show hosted by four lefties, Ethan Xavier, Matt McManus, Victor Brizzoni, and me, Gordon Caddick. Our idea here is to debate controversial and sometimes odious ideas. If you want to learn more about what we are trying to do, check out our first episode where we explain the whole idea. You can find it at academicedgelords.com. But this week here for the New Books Network, I want to play for you our second episode. This episode is on the ultimate academic edgelord, Ted Kaczynski. Yes, the Unabomber. And yes, he is actually an academic. Check out his Google Scholar page for the evidence. On this episode, we will read his manifesto. It's called Industrial Society and Its Future. Okay, a couple of disclaimers, though, before we get going. Technically, yes, I'm hearing your objections right now. The Unabomber Manifesto is not a peer-reviewed academic text. You're right. You'll hear me on this episode talk a little bit about why we made an exception Partly, it was not intended to be an early episode, but we thought of it as a special episode. Then Ted Kaczynski passed away, and we just knew we needed to run it as soon as possible. And one more note, this was a bizarre coincidence, but we recorded the episode a few days before Ted Kaczynski passed away. So if you're wondering why we talk about him like he's alive, it's because at the time he was. In addition to the manifesto, we also look at an actual peer-reviewed article about anarcho-primitivism. Anarcho-primitivism is a wider body of anti-civilizational thinking that you might call Unabomber-esque. The article is called The Future in the Past, Anarcho-Primitivism and the Critique of Civilization Today. It's by Chamsey L. O'Geely and Dylan Taylor. This is a generous but critical review article, and it was published in Rethinking Marxism in April 2020. If you want to read along, check the show notes. Both the article and the manifesto are linked there. And if you like what you hear, consider subscribing to our program. You can find us at academicedgelords.com or wherever you find your podcasts. Uh, because while I for certainly feel stifled, and many other do, in a modern context, right? Again, there's a broader range of capabilities that I enjoy doing just something like this with all of you than I would on a deserted island where, yeah, I could jerk off all day and hunt a shark and nobody would stop me. Uh, but I wouldn't be able to podcast and talk about, you know, all this shit. And I would find that very stifling, personally. But if we weren't here, you could just rant the entire hour. Think about how free that would be. <laughs> <laughs> uh.
Just fucking speak into the abyss, eh? Thanks, uh, thanks, gents, for indulging me in this, uh, you know, supreme edgelord, uh, Ted Kaczynski, <laughs> who, again, I think... AKA we're, the Unabomber. Yeah, exactly. I think we're somewhat stretching the rule because uh, he is not uh, peer-reviewed, or I, actually, he is peer-reviewed, but about math and not about the Unabomber manifesto, um, although you can check his Google Scholar page, and this has many a citation, I think 400 or so. And it came up for me recently when I was talking to a cultural studies scholar who does stuff in environmental humanities. And she mentioned that uh, people reading it in class and discussing it because the Unabomber has had this kind of resurgence. I think in 2018 or so, New York Magazine had had a piece profiling his new young accolades who, you know, write to him and kind of fall in love with the Unabomber and say, actually, the Unabomber was right. And I think <laughs> figuring out whether or not that's true uh, is important because I think more and more people in the context of like the tech lash or whatever you want to call it are turning to maybe not the Unabomber per se, although clearly some are. I think this kind of thinking of sort of anti-civ, anti-natalist, anti-technology, anti, you know, modernity, um, and wanting to sort of reject it all. And that runs through a lot of leftist and pseudo-leftist spaces, which is the, um, the actual peer-reviewed article does a good job of discussing. So we can, we can talk about that. Um, and maybe I just thought, I thought I would, to get us going, share, share a little story of how I how I encountered anarcho-primitivism in the first place. So mm -hmm. this is a very, very BC story. But while I was living in BC and doing my, my graduate degree in journalism, I wanted to do a radio documentary about the burgeoning scene of eco-villages on the West Coast. And when I got there, I quickly discovered people that um, were preaching you know, societal downfall, you know, they were still kind of concerned with peak oil, that, although that was somewhat mm -hmm. on the wane. Um, they talked about civilization, uh, culture, and humanity as a cancer. Um, they seemed very conservative. I, I actually almost wanted to sort of draw a direct uh, parallel with the kind of right-wing preppers because they were all about self-reliance, personal strength, you know, not victimhood. Um, and they said some outlandish things about, um, you know, disabled people or people that weren't strong enough, people that couldn't sort of weren't, weren't didn't have the metal to survive this really, really tough life that they, that they wanted to live, that they idealized. Um, and then as part of that process, I, I had an anarchist advisor uh, on my committee, and we looked at sort of some of the tensions within anarchist thought. And that's how I discovered anarcho-primitivism, which is like this- An anarchist journalist? Uh, no, he was like a critical <laughs> criminologist, but he was in a oh, okay, okay. he was in a sort of green anarchist environmental scholar. He was more on the anarcho syndicalist side, and um, nice. and that's how I that's how I discovered this, um, which 
you know, some people like, but other people in the anarchist tradition, certainly in the Marxist tradition, think this is crazy. Um, and this is, these are like public enemy number one, uh, or should be for the left um, in any kind of like rational modernist project. Um, but anyway, so that's kind of how, how I discovered this. And I've had a kind of pet interest in these people being, you know, a West Coaster here every now and again. Oh, so-and-so had a you know, a ceremony on the beach where he did some sort of mystical thing to mm -hmm. celebrate his vasectomy because he he's come to the conclusion that humanity is a cancer and we need to like be one with nature. That's sort of everywhere. I mean, I actually came across it when I was writing a paper in Professor Ronald Beener's Nietzsche class, actually, because the question I got really interested in vis-a-vis -vis Nietzsche was narratives of recovery, like narratives of, of, of finding some idealized past or capturing some human essence that's missing. And um, I was actually doing kind of a, a Lacanian psychoanalysis of this nascent desire in some political theory for, for some idealized state in the past or glorifying some original human essence that is being obstructed by modernity, right? And like, that's something that very much is at play in Nietzsche. He's certainly not a primitivist at all, but he certainly is someone who's very critical of modernity and the distorting effects it has on some human essence, for lack of a better term. And then uh, I remember when I was writing the paper, Professor Beener was like, well, you know, Rousseau really needs to be a part of the story because yeah. Rousseau has a lot like... And then in reading Rousseau and revisiting the discourse on inequality, which coincidentally I actually recently lectured on this this summer semester for the class I'm teaching, and there's like a huge influence there in Rousseau, and like maybe Rousseau will come up at some point in this conversation because, you know, he really does make a lot of strong arguments for the distorting effect that civilization, and I don't think he uses the word technology, but it's kind of implicit technology, even philosophy, thinking, <clears throat> language itself, like the anarcho-primitivists. Rousseau sees as the kind of initial, like, just like just sowing the seeds of destruction in, in human beings. And then like somehow in my searching, I came across anarcho-primitivism and I was like, wow, this is an, an amazing view. <laughs> One of the things that makes Rousseau distinctive is the fact that he offers the first compulsively non-reactionary critique of modernity that's nostalgic but doesn't look back towards some kind of aristocratic ruralism uh, or Christianity. And I think that comes through very forcefully in anarcho-primitivism. And it's where I think actually sometimes the Marxists get anarcho-primitivism wrong. Because uh, I know a lot of anarcho-primitivists are characterized by Marxists as inherently or crypto-reactionary, right? Because they want this return to pre-modernity. Not understanding that for a lot of reactionary critics of modernity that can also have a kind of ruralist bent to them, there's usually this idea that we're going to go back to aristocratic ruralism, right? Lords and their manners, peasants and serfs, uh, you know, in their fields, and then, you know, a church that everyone will go to on Sunday. What's distinct about anarcho-primitivism is it does have this Rousseauian quality of if we go back far enough, then what we find out is that human beings were fundamentally equal in their natural state, they're not alienated, and people were happier then. And I also think that you can even make a connection to Rousseau's meditations of a solitary walker beyond just the discourse of inequality, uh, because a lot of the stuff that he points out there about coming to commune with nature and entering into himself through nature really has this kind of romantic quality to it uh, that links back to this egalitarian desire to get back to nature and non-alienated human relations that seem impossible given the kind of vulgarity that emerges because of private property and the emergence of inequality. I will say um, I agree that like 
largely speaking, the manifesto came off as like, you know, mostly like non-reactionary. But I did laugh when he was like, you know, to be fair, you know, our primitive state wasn't all wasn't all good. Like there were trans people. Like he's Oh yeah, know, like, that was an amazing that. moment. Yeah. That was an amazing moment. I couldn't believe it. Yeah. Did anyone else catch that? I did catch that. Yeah. And that constitutes yeah. like 50% of what was like most wrong with, you know, tribal societies, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he mentions like murder, rape, and trans people. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we can get into some of the some of the the main points here. I I was kind of struck and surprised that the second major heading was what's wrong with the left, and there was a lot of you know kind of reactionary talk of well, what the left does, it sort of valorizes its own weakness, its own dispossession. And like demands a society, a state, and a technological sort of apparatus to simply provide for it because it's, you know, they essentially want to be losers that are provided for. What did you, what did you folks think about that section? And, and and was it odd that it was there? That it was like one of the the first points. I wonder what it was doing there. Well, yeah, I mean, I think. In general, it seems like there is a critique of the left insofar as we understand the left to be progressive and believe in progress. And like if that and given that anarcho-primitivism, whether we take the Unabombers, I'm just gonna call them the Unabomber and not Kaczynski. <laughs> um whether we take the Unabomber's view or like kind of this more survey article that we looked at, which does talk about the connections between anarcho-primitivism and Marxism and the left, which maybe we'll get into later. But it seems like insofar as progressivism and leftism is associated with progress, which includes technology, um, there's like a reason to be very hostile to certain dreams of, and I mean, even if you look at Marxism, right, it's it's all about, and I think this comes up in the, in the peer-reviewed piece that we looked at. I think he talks about that, like Marxists, traditional Marxists see capitalism as like a positive and negative right because they see it as a positive stage in development that then makes some future communism ultimately possible which obviously is only going to be possible given certain technological but the whole anarcho-primitivist unabomber line here is that the biggest problems with civilization are actually caused by technology and caused by the myth of progress so it makes sense to be critical of the left insofar as you associate the left with progressivism in that sense. Yeah, I think the survey article described Marxism and communism broadly as modernity's loyal opposition. Uh, <laughs> actually, I wouldn't even characterize it that way. I think that most yeah. Marxists are pretty vehement enthusiasts for modernity. There's a lot of textual evidence for this as well. Uh, Marx engaged in really quite a critical uh, analysis of the Luddite movement. Uh, for people who don't know, the Luddites, uh, who gave their name to people who are technophobic, uh, were a group of workers who thought that they were being disadvantaged by the introduction of industrial technology, which was making it more difficult for them to acquire traditional jobs because you know you don't need to have spinning wheels uh, when you have you know the spinning jenny for example uh, so they wanted to smash the industry and Marx was extremely critical of the Luddites. 
it's saying, no, uh, what we need to do is to introduce technology precisely because eventually that's going to lead to rising uh, qualities of life once it becomes socialized. Uh, and if we were to go back and smash it, then what we'd return to is reactionary feudalism, which is also something that you shouldn't want and what you don't seem to be understanding. It just seems like... Um like anarcho-primitivism is almost like a more pessimistic Marxism and that like anarcho-primitivists are like, yeah, since we started the transition away from this egalitarian state of nature, like everything's just going to be fucked until we go back. Whereas Marxism kind of tells the story of like, well, no, we get away from this egalitarian state of nature and then we have to go through these various phases, mm -hmm. you know, slave society, feudal society, capitalism, and then we can return to like a transcended version mm -hmm. of that original state of nature, like a sublated version of it. Um, yeah, what, one touch point I would say, it, it comes up in the peer-reviewed article, is that um, they write that uh, John Zerzan, or Zerzan, I don't know how to pronounce it, one of the sort of I chief... I think it's, I've heard it as Zerzan. Zerzan, whatever. one of the sort of chief anarcho-primitivists, an actual academic, I think, or someone sort of a fringy yep. academic, um, does have, to share the Frankfurt School as an influence, but like in a particular... Marcuse, yeah. Yeah, Marcuse and Horkheimer Adorno and the critique of sort of bureaucratic rationality, the spectacle, the, you know, the, the sort of cultural aspects, the, um, the anime producing ways that sort of the, the, the factors of relations of production, like crush the individual or something like that. It's, it's a totalizing thing that we can't for, for the narco primitivists that we can't possibly like reform or escape. So in the article, they write about how the narco primitivists constructs these conceptual totalities, right? The system, capital S technology, capital T, right? Like the whole apparatus is not something that's open to sort of like, it's not a dynamic system that's open to political contestation. And maybe it has these sort of like stifling rationalities that the Frankfurt School can identify, but it's open to change, but not for the anarcho-primitivist. The anarcho-primitivist sees it as like a whole thing that needs to be utterly and completely rejected. I want to say, um, I think that I can understand why a Anarcho-primitivists would be impressed by early forms of Marxism, particularly Marxist humanism, uh, which Marx himself was later critical of precisely for having this kind of reactionary quality to it, uh, consistently emphasizing the alienation of mankind under modern technical conditions uh, and how the only way to return to mankind's essence uh, is through some kind of repudiation of capitalism. I think his mature standpoint uh, in Capital Volume 3 makes it very clear uh, that he's moved quite a long way from that. Uh, in fact, one of the things that he consistently stresses is that technology uh, and the development of, of civilization will potentially be the great emancipator of humankind. One of the problems is precisely the fact that technology, rather than being used to enable human capabilities, uh, is being used to diminish human capabilities by forcing people to become one-dimensional, when through technology we could develop many different aptitudes that we don't have right now. I think it's actually in the... In the peer-reviewed piece, the kind of uh, survey piece, uh, there's there's a part where I think these pe these two authors sum up uh, like the, the anarcho-primitive position pretty well. They kind of call it a radicalized and expanded anarchistic critiques of power. So they, they say that for the anarcho-primitivist, power relations are pervasive, entrenched within all aspects of life. Civilization as a conceptual object encompasses state, private property, patriarchy, war, technology, and power relations generally, and it's associated with abstraction, separation, instrumental rationality, mediation, fragmentation, 
mastery hierarchy, mm -hmm. objectification ordering. And so then the normative claim from this is only through dismantling civilization uh, can humans recover an enchanted unity with nature, yeah. meaning dignity and harmonious community. And, you know, I think the other thing that especially the Unabomber emphasizes, but so does the views in the in the survey article like a special a, a special kind of autonomy or like a more original kind of autonomy where like once those structures are dismantled then you're fully unified and i think there's i mean there's a lot in that quote um which is really interesting which reminds me of my kind of uh psychoanalytic critique i made of nietzsche that i was alluding to or mentioning before because like I think there's this fantasy that we can see here where like all these things are separating us from some wholeness, right? And like this is sort of the the fantasy of the anarcho-primitivist in part. It's like we can recover some human essence which will give us some sense of security, some sense of wholeness. And um not to get make this about psychoanalysis, but for me I I like accept the kind of psychoanalytic view that that's a fantasy that's never existed, never did exist, never will exist. A kind of sense of wholeness but if i could just uh make a kind of small jab here if you're being fully freudian about it uh, it could be the case that we are all, all as men searching for some hole that always seems very out of distance but you know <laughs> get the fuck out of here <laughs> <laughs> anyway so uh, yeah i don't know how helpful that is but like that i just wanted to kind of get on the table what i saw as like the position as laid out at least in the article of like what we're talking about i think that's absolutely right it's like it's it's not that it's it's a kind of it's not capitalist domination that's the problem it's like instrumental rationality science bureaucracy uh, reason, language, civilization, anything that puts a kind of order um, and, and sort of pumps us into the machine and, and, and disconnects us from our, our oneness with some imagined nature, ultimately. Exactly. It's, it's a much more fundamental problem. In a way, it's like a lot pet more. As Ethan was saying before, it's very pessimism, pessimistic because if you accept the position, you're like, oh, shit, the problem is actually much more fundamental right? yeah. than than just capitalism or something like that or like power it's like no just like the very drive to build anything that is like based on abstraction or instrumental reasoning right like, yeah. which is like a lot of us and i mean especially us interested in philosophy or you know i mean obviously instrumental rationality is not but just any sort of rationality in general is like the problem critical inquiry in a way is a problem insofar as it leads us to more separation right yeah, I think this is where I have a fundamental problem with anarcho-primitivism. Uh, now, I do think there's an argument to be made for it, but I'll start with my problem, which runs along this dimension of what we would call authenticity, right, and the aspiration for authenticity. I'll just use that term. Uh, I tend to take a Zizekian standpoint, both in terms of the human psyche and its relationship to nature, right? Uh, I do think that there's this yearning for a sense of wholeness or completion, even a manic desire for a sense of wholeness or completion uh, that is often encoded as a yearning for authenticity that I ultimately think that human beings should reject, uh, precisely because I think that authenticity or Purity of heart being to will one thing uh, would ultimately frag or sorry, uh, do a disservice to our nature by making us more myopic and one-dimensional in exactly the way that Marcuse is being critical of. Uh, and I really, really think that ascribing sublime characteristics to nature, even theic characteristics for nature, uh, is just a form of projection onto our part. I think that 
Jesus is absolutely right that nature maybe is not a catastrophe, as you sometimes put it, uh, but it is just material processes occurring, right, without any kind of deep intrinsic reason uh, being latent within it that one can participate in, right? And mm. projecting any kind of meaning into that that will then back into you, right, recursively, uh, I think is a serious mistake uh, or a fantasy, right? So I'm just not attracted to it mm -hmm. from that standpoint. Now, the argument that I do think that anarcho-primitives make that does have some weight to it is the environmental argument that I was surprised the article didn't really dive into. Uh, and we could talk about that later on, but I just wanted to lay my cards on the table and say that uh, I have no aspiration to go to the country and <laughs> frolic naked in the grass uh, unless I'm drunk or on shrooms, in which case maybe for a couple hours. But beyond that, I am with Marx that I think the more apt way of thinking about how to secure human flourishing uh, is to precisely insist that we are many things and not one thing, mm. and to try to secure a world where the development of human capabilities becomes an end in itself. Whether or not that can be compatible with environmentalism, that's a whole different question. To your first point, sort of play devil's advocate, or maybe not to play devil's advocate, but I think it's it's worth it's worth articulating what exactly um, to Victor's earlier point that that the conception of autonomy that the Unabomber and and anarcho primitivists in general, what exactly is it they're longing for? It's not necessarily an imagined nature. I don't like you could you could like in in certain instances he does say you know maybe you are sort of subject to the weather or there's like certain natural disasters that you can't control and X Y Z. It's not a it's not a perfect primitive that he's longing for, but what he's saying is that essentially to run through the basics of the argument. We live in a society in which, well, as people, we have something, a desire for something he calls a, a power process, which is essentially that we need to have goals whose attainment requires some effort, that we have some chance of success, and we do so with some degree of autonomy, both as individuals and like small, small collections of people. Um, but in industrial society, our own autonomy and our goal seeking is essentially subverted because we have a, a society that sort of provides most of what we need for us. Um, and then so long as we oblige, so long as we obey, you know, we go to work, we obey the edicts of the technological system and our, our basic uh, needs are met. And then we essentially fill that goal seeking and um, achieving with a bunch of surrogate goals that actually aren't aren't particularly um, helpful. So, so we have all these psychological problems uh, produced by this process, essentially by our power process being stifled. Now, what's attractive to the primitivist about the primitive is not necessarily that it's a utopia, but that it's a world that's sort of built of our own making. So in modern industrial society and industrial capitalism, you know, what I think is good, what, what uh, anarcho-primitivism gets right is that they capture the sort of alienated and interconnected complex nature of our society. I mean, all of the sort of theorists of modernity do this. So Habermas, Giddens, and co, they say, actually, you know, we live in a risk society. We, we, we're dependent upon all these expert systems. We have little to no agency or control over it. This produces this sense of like distrust and alienation. That is what the anarcho-primitivist is talking about. And in fact, even Ted Kaczynski did, you know, to his manifesto, he says, you know, probably about 500 to 1,000 people make real choices in this society. So if we can't make real choices, that's the problem. And in the primitive, even if that's 
terrible materially or worse materially, um, at least we are making free and choices as individuals and as a small collective of people. So just to get the basics of the argument down. Yeah. I mean, a lot of that stuff in there was super interesting. And that was sort of where I started finding that like his account, like the Unabomber's account was, you know, there were a bunch of points where I was like, okay, I disagree. But in terms of when he's talking about the sort of malaise of various ways in which modern society has functioned. And I know Ethan kind of felt the same way as far as from our earlier chatting, but yeah, I found some of that stuff appealing, but Ethan, you haven't talked in a while. So like, I'll give you the opportunity if you want to jump in. Yeah. I mean, I think like, um, and what Gordon was mentioning, I also think is like part of this more meta point, which is like, he has this argument that like, well, we evolved under certain conditions and we evolved to be used to certain conditions and certain patterns of behavior. And then we have all this like rapid change and all of a sudden we're living in an environment that's just like completely mismatched from like the conditions we evolved to flourish in. And so I think like that's sort of like, you know, there is this idea of like, you know, there being this like ideal state where like we're sort of in unity with nature and something in modern and something about modernity is like this fundamental mismatch. And it is almost like this religious notion, but I do think it like is lent some plausibility by this sort of like mechanistic argument about like, you know, Evo psych or whatever, which you know, I'm not exactly sure what the, the merits of that are, but it's an interesting like argument nonetheless. I mean, I, I think I agree that, um, I, I, I find it, I think it's a bit weird because like, I almost think Ted Kaczynski on the one hand is too pessimistic and on the other hand, like not pessimistic enough, which is like, I think we both have pessimism, but like located in different places where like, he's more like optimistic about how good the state of nature was, at least like from what I read, whereas I'm kind of like, no, I think the state of nature was shit. I think it's like horrible. I think nature is a really brutal and unpleasant place. And then like, you know, I also think it's the case that probably as we sort of like bettered our own position and developed society more and more, we create all these new problems and attempt to address the problems with nature. So now we have this new host of problems, like he mentions, we're overcrowded, but we're still lonely because we don't have these small, tight-knit communities that we used to have. And our work is non-autonomous and not empowering like it used to be and so on. And so we traded in all the old problems for a set of new problems. And I think like the question we should be asking is not how can we return to the old problems, but rather like, okay, how can we synthesize, you know, like try and like obtain the things that were good about the state of nature and mimic them while also getting like the benefits of like technology. Like, I think that's probably like a more productive direction to look at, I feel. Yeah. And this is where I also wanted to say that I think there can definitely be a fascistic quality to certain forms of anarcho-primitivism. In fact, I don't think uh, there are, you know, anarcho-fascist communities and green-fascist communities uh, that appropriate very similar rhetoric. Uh, and it's not a coincidence that the language of authenticity uh, that is common to some flavors of anarcho-primitivism can also be very, very easily wielded by reactionaries. Because let's take Gordon's uh, kind of description you know, at face value. This idea that the world is not something that is my creation uh, because I am invariably determined by the choices and actions of others within industrial civilization. So the only possibility is the return to a more competitive uh, but ultimately more natural state uh, where my strength and independence is able to assert itself against the world. Uh, that very much has a kind of fascistic quality, right? Oh, yeah. In synthesizing this modern emphasis on the will and self-creation with a more antiquarian desire for 
strength, independence uh, of capacity, uh, almost these kind of aristocratic mm. virtues, right? Along with all the localism, ruralism, and so on. Now, that's not to suggest that anarcho-primitivism is inherently fascistic. I'm not making that claim at all, right? I'm just saying that coded in this way, it can very easily transition in sure. that direction. And I would argue that Kaczynski was leaning towards that. I mean, I was actually about to say that I think I think the Unabomber is surprisingly like i mean he's very at the end like I, I only attempt to skim like his kind of recommendations at the end but when he has like really like views that i don't want to i obviously don't accept but like i think he's pretty clear in saying like he doesn't have a political project in mind exactly other than just like destroying civilization <laughs> like he's basically like it needs to be destroyed so that then we can be freed from it right but like i don't think he has like a regime right i mean like I, I see what you're saying, Matt, in terms of like where it can be used for those elements. But I find it like it's hard because I feel like anarcho-primitivism also almost doesn't fit any of these molds because all those other traditional terms we use like fascism, like depend on a very modern idea of a regime. Right. And it's like and he almost seems to be anti-regime in a certain sense. He's just like. You know, it just needs to be destroyed so that then people can freely, you know, just live off the land or whatever. I, I don't know if fascistic is the right word, but the reason why I brought up the the question about why does he attack leftism right at the beginning, I think that gets to the heart of the ideology here. It is not just anti-civ, but it's like idealizing, um, to, to Matt's earlier point, the kind of like individual action of the of the person's ability to mold society. And so the problem with leftism it's not just that we embrace technology, progress, modernity, uh, science, all of those things. It's that we want someone to provide for us in a certain sense. We want society mm -hmm. to provide, but he wants to idealize uh, strength, individual strength, and sort of stigmatize individual weakness. Now, that's not necessarily fascistic, but I think it's monstrous. It's, it's toxically masculine. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> this is what I wanted to bring up, right? Uh, Alexander Reed Ross, in his really good book, Against Fascist Creep, has pointed out, and this is what I was going to get to, uh, that Kaczynski actually has had a profound influence on eco-fascism or green fascism, as it's sometimes called, uh, because exactly the reasons that I kind of laid out, right? But you can think about how this could be appropriated uh, in very, very direct ways uh, by contemporary fascists, not classical ones who I agree uh, tend to be statist sometimes hyper-modernist in certain respects, right? Uh, but eco-fascism is distinct from what we might call generic or classical fascism, uh, where it tends to emphasize things like, again, this return to nature in order to express one's will within it, uh, an emphasis on individual strength and self-creation, but also in local communities that are usually racially coded, uh, with this idea being that we can most harmoniously live in small-scale communities that will put us in touch both within our own nature and nature generally uh, if they are white frankly. Right. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Well, there's definitely like a kind of accelerationist bent here too, right? Like you got to just, but I also think it's important to like pick up again on what Gordon was talking about, like the kind of individualism at the core, which I find really interesting, right? Because like, it's true that this self-reliance idealization seems to be really important for Kaczynski, the Unabomber, like it's, and you know, that's the thing that leftism, I guess, is getting wrong. And interestingly, I think you know, to, to link back to Rousseau, I remember one of the things that I found the most puzzling about Rousseau's vision of the state of nature. Yes, it's egalitarian, it's equal, but it's also individualistic. They're like all alone. They're all like alone roaming. I'm like that's so puzzling. So I, mean, I it's think re it's, it's reveries of a solitary walker, right? Yeah. And it's, it's just puzzling because, 
you know, you would think that uh, like the kind of collective energy that small kind of indigenous communities have would be the kind of desirable thing that would even even the things that Kaczynski's talking about in terms of like the psychological ills of people. It's kind of interesting to me that he sees the cure to that as I mean, maybe he alludes to it a little bit, but his vision seems so individualistic in terms of being able to go and, and, and use your own effort to get the things that you want, right. In his power process, right. The things that are satisfying require effort. And there's a kind of individualist bent to the way he frames it. Well, it seems to me that, you know, a lot of the things that are bad about modernity are the ways that they disconnect us from each other. Yes. Um, it's interesting. Like, um, I was going to say something similar about like, it seems like sort of the right wing and prims kind of get wrong. Like I'm kind of in agreement that there is something desirable about like primitivist society that was lost when we sort of transitioned to modernity. But I think like a lot of the more right wing anarcho primitivists kind of misdiagnose what was desirable about that state. And there's an interesting, um, set of anecdotes. I read a book called, um, uh, the Dawn of Everything by David Graeber and uh, Wengro. And they talked about some anecdotes, I think, towards the beginning of that book, where, like, you know, we have examples where people who lived in these very tribal, primitivistic kinds of societies went over and lived for like a couple of years or so in like a modern society. And when you gave them the opportunity to either stay or go back, they always chose to go back. And then in the other direction, we have yeah. people who lived in modern societies who then lived for a little bit in like one of these more primitivist, um, you know, sort of tribal societies. And when asked, okay, do you want to go back to modernity or stay here? They always chose to stay. And so it seems like when people are given both options, they usually prefer primitivist sort of forms of organization. Mm -hmm. But when you ask them why, like what was desirable about that sort of primitivist organization, the two main reasons that they give is that one, there was much more community, and two, there was much more equality between people. And I think that's what what a lot of this misses. I mean, it's sort of critique of modernity. I think a we share a lot of those those sort of precepts. I think what it it doesn't uh, recognize is <laughs> the beauty of like uh, a social body, like doing things that are great and wonderful and beautiful, like like the goal seeking here is just an individual like on the plane or in the forest doing whatever. I mean, where, where is the greater heights that humanity sort of can strive for and achieve? It's just like all of culture is wiped out. There is no culture here. There is no progress here. There is no science. There is no technology. I think that really sort of degrades all of humanity. And, and what I want to say is like, I've been somewhat uh, generous here, uh, but but I think that ultimately like, this is an ideology of like genocidal proportions, like of oh, ma yeah. mass suffering. Like the, the people in the eco I mean, I completely agree. I call that fascistic or proto-fascistic for a reason. And I would even take away the proto if I wasn't trying to like co-op the government. Go ahead. But the people I, I met on the eco-villages that shared these kind of ideologies, they would talk about the necessity for civilizational collapse and how billions of people would have to die, and that's okay, right? And like, we don't have the space or the time or the capacity to deal with these weak people. Um, they're like a cancer, um, and they're holding us back from this oneness and wholeness and and all of that, right? And so the, the critique, and in the piece, it talks about like... Um, 
one of the one of the people I ran into had the best critique of anarcho-primitivism was Murray Bookchin, who's a social ecologist. He's a left eco-anarchist who has a little bit more of a modernist vision, um, or at least did. I mean, it was it, it evolves, but basically, like one of his critiques of the anarcho-primitivist is like tell the single mother she can't have a washing machine. Like very simple. Like what you're taking away is producing. A whole lot of suffering. And then just the last point I'll make, I think my biggest sort of like, my biggest gripe with the argument as a whole, not just its sort of political implications and consequences and the suffering, but what the actual argument is, is this point I made earlier about how things are perceived of in sort of conceptual totality. There is nature, there is culture, there is technology, there is people, right? And and what the primitivist doesn't seem to understand that I think any good leftist should, is that all of these things are open to political, social contestation. These are dynamic forces, dynamic institutions, dynamic technologies. There, there is no such thing as capital T technology. It is always socially and politically constructed and negotiated. And that seems to be, I don't know why, they can never seem to to, to articulate that that, that, that there can't be a different kind of technology. No, I think that's a... Sorry, I think that's a great point, uh, Gordon, and I think that's why people like Terry Equalton very rightly chastise uh, leftists for not being capable sometimes of thinking dialectically, although thinking dialectically uh, in terms of unstable totalities is the kind of hallmark, uh, he thinks at least, of being a kind of leftist materialist. Yeah, but I, I mean, so I don't know. I, I don't know if someone else wants to jump in and like, cause, but I think it would be like worth just exploring specifically like some of the things that he talks about and like why, cause, cause I think what Kaczynski does, which kind of surprised me, that was, I mean, I don't want to say good, but like in a way, I, I guess I came in with super low expectations. Right. But like what he does is kind of go through a bunch of different possible answers for why civilization might be able to solve certain kinds of these social problems and then gives kind of responses for why he doesn't think those things are going to work, right? Like, you know, we have to give people opportunities. And then he kind of thinks, well, that's not going to work because in a society, the way that it's structured, it's like kind of robbing people actually of the opportunity to be the best version of themselves, which I guess in his vision is, you know, this kind of self-reliant natural creature that can like hunt and fish. And it's like, you know, society in so far as it can't give people like that outlet to exert those efforts, it's just not going to be enough. And I'm one of the things I kind of found funny is like the way he's so dismissive of like the effort required to like be a laborer in the yes, modern society. That he's was like funny. He's just like, he's just like barely any effort. And I was like, okay, I mean, I guess, but like. I thought about that as well. And I think, I think that's kind of like telling because, you know, I think like that thought is what kind of led me to think that he might just have like the wrong diagnosis of like what exactly is wrong with modernity. Because like when he says like, oh, well, the problem is we don't have to exert enough effort to, you know, acquire our basic necessities. It's like. Well, I don't think that's true. I don't think like most people are sitting at their job thinking like, oh, I fucking hate this nine to five job because it's not difficult enough. <laughs> I think like I think like the more common sort of like reason that people hate their jobs is just because, you know, it's like very disempowering. You know, everything they do, they're like lorded over by a capitalist who commands them to do everything that they do. They don't really have any real stake in the business that they're working for. Like we used to have a stake in the communities that we would like directly hunt and fish for. So it's like the labor process is just less autonomous. It's less meaningful. And I think like there are certainly ways of remedying that, you know, like 
for example, like Mal Michael Albert has this idea of like balanced job complexes where like, you know, if a lot of people don't find their jobs meaningful, we can mix up the jobs so that everybody has some mixture of more empowering and less empowering tasks that they do. You know, there's all kinds of like institutional kind of like changes that we can make, I feel, to make labor like more empowering and to make it more like communal and um, like less soul crushing. And I think that the reason Ted Kaczynski kind of misses that point is just because he has this like bizarre impression that the problem with work is like, it's too easy. Well, he entered academia like 16 uh, and spent all his time as a mathematician, right? So it's not hugely surprising. I just want to say one thing that I think really uh, gets to the point of what you're talking about. I would actually argue that in our murder and workplaces, we're more alienated than we would have been uh, in primitive societies. And I think this is a point that many socialists have emphasized down to the present day with the writings of people like Liz Anderson, uh, which is to say that we should want to go back, right? Because one of the things that is characteristic about, say, feudal society is that you didn't really have a boss, right? You had a lawyer that would come by once every year and said, give me your resources and could enlist you to fight to the death in his army so he could annex the Duchy of Anjou, right? Which is pretty bad. But for the most part, you were left on your own to your own devices as long as you're able to pay up at the end of the year, right? Uh, whereas now in a contemporary workplace, we all know, right, how regulated and overdetermined we are. We don't even have to read our code to know that, right? Uh, I mean, we have evidence that, you know, Amazon workers are told when they can go pee, for God's sakes, right? Uh, I've read stories about employers who will try to assess what it is that their employees are spending their time on social media doing. Uh, there was a study that, or sorry, a case that I just heard about recently uh, in Sarab Amari's book, Tyranny, where... Employers would actually hack into their employees' computers to read their personal messages to try to figure out if they were making fun of the bosses in any way, shape, or form. That's all extremely invasive and extremely humiliating, and it's not the kind of thing you would experience working on a farm, uh, growing your crops, you know, taking shit when it is that you want to take a shit, uh, and just waiting for the Lord to show up at the end of the <laughs> month demanding you know, his pound of flesh or whatever it happens to be. I also think what's funny about it is like, his the connection he makes from like the social so when he's describing all of the social ills i think it's like um yeah it's um you know he talks about the way modern society disrupts the power process which gordon described earlier and i think like you know he goes through a bunch of things and like some of them actually hit a bit hit home you know like talking about you know people who indefinitely postpone everything right they indefinitely postpone having children because they're trying to seek some kind of fulfillment right and it's like you know like all these things in modern society that like you know, a midlife crisis, you know, it's just a symptom of like, but, it, but what's funny is like all these things for him are not a symptom necessarily of like some of the things that Matt and Ethan and you were just describing, but it's really a symptom of like the fact that we aren't able to do our natural or have authentic freedom, which at one point he like non-ironically describes as like, you know, the ability to take care of ourselves. And he says, primitive man threatened by a fierce animal or by hunger can fight in self-defense so like literally he's saying like your life doesn't have real meaning and you're gonna feel a midlife crisis until you're in an environment where like your life might be threatened <laughs> every day <laughs> in nature and like and that you're self-sufficient and that your self-sufficiency is tested every day to like the point of it being life-threatening and like on the one hand i gotta say there's like something like there's a grain of this that I understand in the sense that like 
when we push ourselves to overcome things that are really challenging, though they're like those are like the most satisfying moments in mm -hmm. our life. This is something that Nietzsche kind of pointed out in too when he's kind of mocking the utilitarians is like just trying to get as much pleasure as possible that like actually there's this tremendous amount of meaningfulness that mm. comes from pushing ourselves in situations where objectively we're suffering, but like we overcome it and it leads to the greatest meaning in life. But it's also kind of crazy to me that like he makes such a broad general, general connection between not being able to fight against wild animals and, you know, having a midlife crisis. Or something. <laughs> no, I feel like this conversation has, inspired me to finally challenge that raccoon that's been digging through my trash <laughs> at night I'm gonna finally make a go at it yeah fuck him fuck him up ethan <laughs> fuck him up hard there's something there like this is one of the things that surprised me and like at ethan when 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 he said like oh my god life is so easy now i, th I did chuckle as well and it seems like a post-scarcity vision more than it is like an environmental doomerism vision ironically it's like the problem actually is that like industrial capitalism like provides for us sedates us amuses us provides us outlets that don't actually help us sort of self-actualize now his his kind of expression of that as like fighting a lion i think again just degrades the human race but i do think that there is a point there that like there is maybe like strands of a kind of like juvenile online leftism where it's just like, all I just want like UBI and not to like work hard. And I just want to like chill and like smoke weed. That to me seems so alienating. And so like, so uh, like it would be, it would be benefit from reading this in a, in a certain level. Right. Cause like, I do think there is something about like actualizing our goals. That's important. There should be higher goals than fighting a lion, and there should be collective goals to like human and societal flourishing. But just being provided for in a post scarcity society, I do think that that would never quite quite satisfy. Oh yeah, I think there's been a long standing critique of that going all the way back to people like. Dostoevsky, right, uh, in Notes from the Underground, where he talks mm. about the Crystal Palace and how even if you could design a utopia, one of the first things that people would want to do would be to smash it, just to assert uh, that they were smashing it as an act of will, right? Yes. But I want to go back to this point about fighting the lion uh, and violence, because again, I think it reflects well on his influence, not well, it reflects on the influence he can have on things like ecofascism, right? Uh, now, one of the things that I want to point out is I do think that there is a edifying quality uh, to struggle. Uh, and you can talk to some soldiers and they'll tell you that there is a sense in which life obtains a thickness of meaning in situations where life is risked that can very rarely be found in any other instances, maybe at birth, maybe in certain kind of transcendent moments, but it's very hard to emulate, right? Uh, because everything comes into focus and is at stake in these kind of contexts. I think that the problem is this idea, the idea that this can be generalized uh, to any kind of social context, or even that it would be beneficent to generalize this to broad social context. Because while it might be the case that in some circumstances, engaging in life-risking activities can be edifying, you know, climbing a mountain or whatever it happens to be, or you know, trying to save the life, you know, someone's life by riding into traffic, I don't think uh, it would be conducive to human flourishing to encourage people to do that day in and day out. Uh, in fact, I think that 
if you had a society where that became the generalized rule, uh, what you'd wind up with is a society of psychopaths uh, rather than one where people push themselves to become the best that they possibly can be. And I think that we can see that because every attempt to generalize this ethic of the edification of violence has failed catastrophically and produced just the kind of result that I'm talking about. And like one one of the senses I got from reading the Unabomber is like, he clearly has like intellectual chops, but he just hasn't read anything. Like I felt like, I felt like he was making like interesting arguments and I was like, wow, like if only you'd engaged with Rousseau or Hegel or like all these other people, you'd have something more interesting to say because like the account of freedom where like you're free to fend for yourself, you know, fight off a bear and like exert yourself. And then like how society kind of is structured in a way where we don't have that freedom anymore. Right. Where like that, that is taken from us because there's this new infrastructure that sort of determines a certain number of choices for us and the way also technology, maybe we can talk about too in, in a little bit, like how that's a mesh. Like I was sympathetic to it all to some extent, but on the other hand, I was like, he's describing, you know, like if you would have read Hegel, for example, right? Like Hegel has this whole like evolution of freedom where he talks about how in the state of nature, like you have this kind of individualist freedom where, yeah, you can nominally, you can do anything you want because there's no overarching structure to tell you not to. But on the other hand, it's actually like you're not free at all because you're kind of stuck in this situation where like you're in this natural corner with these trees living off the land and there's a bunch of things that are out of your control, right? Like being hunted by an animal, like being able to farm, for example, like and have like there's a bunch of things that aren't free. And like he makes this argument that like civil society, you know, is actually this evolution of freedom where it's like you give up that natural freedom. But there's actually a new kind of freedom that is transcended that is like this social freedom. I just kept wishing I was like, wow, it would have been interesting to hear him respond to Hegel, right? Or like Or other anarchists. I mean, I think he at one point refers to himself as an anarchist. And, you know, the anarchist tradition has like the richest tradition of theorizing what exactly like the individual freedom and creative uh, flourishing is supposed to look like. So you could read someone like Emma Goldman, who would call this a sort of crass individualism. And you could look at the social anarchist tradition, which has actually like our ourselves are realized in community, that the kind of freedom that we have fighting a line on the savannah is a very, very like impoverished type of freedom. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of the examples that I sometimes give um, in my class to talk about that is to say, imagine that you are on a deserted island, right, uh, where there was no civilization. Uh, would you consider yourself more free than if you were living in a big city like Toronto, right? Uh, I think that most people would regard that very quickly as a prison, right? Uh, because even though they were unconstrained in the way that Victor was talking about, and if you wanted, you can go and try to like spear a shark and test your manliness in that way. Uh, not being able to form meaningful relations with other people and not being able to realize your full range of human capacities would very quickly come to be seen as extraordinarily stifling, even to the point where I think that most people would probably not want to live for very long in such a context, right? And I think this is to the Hegelian point that both Victor and Gordon are making, uh, which is that the proper way of understanding freedom is not as a lack of constraint on your individuality, to use Gordon's term, uh, but as a form of social determination, or sorry, um, self-determination uh, that necessarily requires another uh, to interact with. Uh, because while I certainly feel stifled, and many other do, 
in a modern context, right? Again, there's a broader range of capabilities that I enjoy doing just something like this with all of you than I would on a deserted island where, yeah, I could jerk off all day and hide a shark and nobody would stop me. Uh, but I wouldn't be able to podcast and talk about, you know, all this shit. And I would find that very stifling, personally. But if we weren't here... You could just rant the entire hour. Think about how free that would be. <laughs> uh, just fucking speak into the abyss, eh? Yeah, it's funny. I think also what struck me too is like going back a little bit to the diagnosis because of the way that these things cause these crises and these psychological you know, ills that he identifies as being connected to these modern conditions, technological conditions. Like I'm some, as I was saying, I'm somewhat sympathetic to those things, but like, I also kind of have like my own speculative theory about this stuff, about like, about um, what is like the, the, and certainly like modern conditions are connected to it. But, you know, whenever I, I read something and then obviously knowing what happened with Ted Kaczynski and, you know, becoming the Unabomber, it's like, I mean, I haven't actually looked this up. I did watch the Netflix documentary about him but I haven't actually looked this up, but like, I always just think, okay, like parents, like, like how, like what happened to you? Like, you know, like what, you know, like what, what, and, and, and like, I do personally think that a lot of modernity's ills, <clears throat> yeah, they're connected to capitalism technology, but I think that my sort of psychological theory is that like the reason that those things have an effect is because it doesn't put parents and families in like, the in a strong enough position to actually put the time in that's necessary to like give their children you know the the kinds of attention that they need to become you know confident self-motivated members of society who like don't start to get anxious and depressed all the time right and like and like that's kind of my like totally speculative unsubstantiated bro science theory but like that's kind of what i think speaking of um speculative science i think um we, someone had mentioned this before, but like one issue that I had with the Unabomber manifesto really was just like, I can't count the amount of like empirical claims that he made without really having any empirical evidence for them. It was kind of just like, oh, well, this empirical claim seems like intuitive to me, which, you know, like is fine to do sometimes. But like if I were going to bomb people, for instance, I would want a more solid sort of empirical basis for my views than sort of intuition. Yeah, absolutely. Totally. I mean, there's a lot yeah, in there. Like. I mean, <laughs> I don't know. Like, I, I, he does strike me as someone who's super intelligent, but not, uh, to Victor's point earlier, not particularly well read. Um, apparently, a, a prodigy, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Random factoid apparently, his IQ is like 167. Hmm. And he went and he and he went to where you are, Matt. University of Michigan is where he <laughs> yeah, does PhD. Yeah. Alma mater, yeah. I have a different, somewhat psychological take on him. This is just armchair uh, psychologizing, though. Although I do want to say, I think it's funny that Victor uh, finally seemed to affirm the wisdom of Helen Lovejoy that you know we just need to think more about the children, right, in order to get everything right. It, it seems to me that there's a kind of neurotic quality to his writing uh, that conforms to what Freud talked about when he described neurosis as almost this kind of hyperlogical sensibility, really, uh, where a neurotic will have one big idea, extrapolate a huge number of conclusions from that, and then see the world as effectively reflecting that big idea back to them and conforming to the patterns that he extrapolated everywhere. Because it seems to me that Kaczynski at some point got this idea into his head that modernity and the modern world was radically fallen and radically deficient. Uh, and qua Malthy's comment about a lack of empirical evidence, he just seemed to extrapolate from that thesis that 
anything that he looked at conformed to this belief that society was radically fallen. Uh, so while he's definitely crazy, let's be clear about that, right? There is a kind of hyperlogicism to his insanity uh, where he just takes this idea and runs with it to its maximal extent. Uh, and I think that really, again, shows the danger to uh, Gordon's point about thinking undialectically about things and adopting this totalizing hyperlogical uh, sensibility without being attentive to nuanced context mm. and all the other things that as academics, at least, uh, or, you know, prodigies in the case of uh, Ethan's case, you know, we need to be sensitive to. Can I just share two, um, two tidbits here from his uh, Wikipedia page? I should have done this earlier, but just to sort of armchair psychoanalyze him a little bit. So one of the, the, the main things that comes up here is while he was studying at Harvard, he was part of a psychological experiment that he described as uh, brutalizing. Um, I'm not going to go through all the, the various uh, psychological and personal uh, abuse that he went through, but some people, you know, he was humiliated, he was demoralized. Some people thought that it might have actually been part of MKUltra, um, that this person was sort of doing mind control techniques. I don't know all the particulars of this. People can look it up later, but I think it's probably fair to surmise, although here it says that uh, Ted Kaczynski uh, denied that this had any significant impact in his life. I think it's it's probably fair to surmise that his sort of like total disregard for the scientific enterprise and like instrumental and technical rationality might be somewhat shaped by this period of like intense abuse that he was put in through by a, a preeminent psychological scholar at Harvard. And then and then later on, it says here that at one point he was deciding to undergo gender transition. So which, which is funny because of that sort of anti-trans comment that he made in the manifesto. Could transitioning have saved her is the question. <laughs> I like that you've already yeah. switched the genders there. <laughs> yeah. uh, I mean, it was funny, like the way he, yeah, he he just mentions that. He, like I actually found the quote where he's like, you know, it is true not all was sweetness and light in primitive societies. Abuse of women was common among Australian ab aborigines. Transsexuality was fairly common among the American Indian tribes. And it does appear, generally speaking, the kinds of problems that we have listed. Yeah, so like, I mean, that's another thing. I mean, I remember when I originally read that through that, obviously I was like, wow, that's kind of weird that that's like a mention of a, of a social ill. Like, it's just clear to me that like, you know, even if we were like, he points to important features of our ancestral environment that like the lack of those features is really like distressing to us or really harmful to us. And like, that's pretty plausible to me. I think that's like, probably true that there are things like that. And, you know, I'm even open to the idea that the ancestral environment is better than what we have right now. But then it's like, okay, well, stepping back from that, there are like these additional questions, which is like, one, is our ancestral environment like optimal? Or is there some like better, like alternative way of going about handling technology that would be better than what we have now and what we used to have? And like, in addition to that, like from where we sit right now, like from our current practical standpoint, what's like the best, most practical direction to be moving in? And I would say that I think there probably are ways of handling technology societally that would be optimal and better than our ancestral environment and better than what we have right now. And I also think from our current practical standpoint, the most like practical option in terms of like expected value probably is not 
trying to abolish technology. I don't think many people will go for that. And I don't think that movement will have better success, uh, will have much success. So it's like, okay, well, we should probably be trying to more think about how we can fine tune our current society such that we get more of the benefits of what we used to have without giving up the costs, like, you know, having more community without giving up antibiotics, mm. for instance, you know? You know, and, and it also just occurred to me that maybe the reason he emphasizes individualism is because if he admits that, you know, that we would have been collective at the time, um, then like, I think that it's very plausible to assume based on anthropological evidence that like in these tribes, in these more tribal societies, it's not like there's not these like coercive kind of traditional structures that emerge that do constrain right? Like insiders and outsiders, right? Like, like these things exist in, in like tribal societies where like you're part of the tribe, you're not like, are you deviating from our traditions or are you not that kind of constrain your behavior? Those things seem to emerge spontaneously, right? Like it's just seems to be the case that for whenever human beings gather, they end up building some kind of coercive structure of either traditions or, you know, oral traditions that do talk about like right ways of living and wrong ways of living. Right. And those can be extremely constrained. And I could imagine myself, you know, growing up there, like, you know, assuming that my curiosity and like obsession with asking annoying gadfly questions is not just a result of my socialization. I could imagine being in that scenario and being feeling extremely constrained as I think maybe Matt was talking about earlier. Right. That like, it's not obvious that everyone's going to be satisfied. <laughs> is what I'm trying to say. Right. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I often point out that Anthropological evidence uh, doesn't really benefit anyone's political narrative since the most recent account that I've read, accounts I should say, uh, suggests that in this state of nature, we lived in communist polyamorous societies that were highly tribalistic uh, and deeply patriarchal. So everybody gets to lose something uh, <laughs> exactly. when we looked at, yeah. at uh, you know, anthropology, right? Uh, exactly. And I don't think anybody would want to go back there, right? Uh, but the other thing that I think that's problematic that speaks to Victor's point is I tend to think that if people were truly happy in these circumstances, then we'd see something emerge like what emerges in uh, Goethe's Faust, right? Where Mephistopheles says, if you're truly happy and you settle for a minute, uh, then you're not going to want to leave, right? And this is kind of part of the trick that's played. Uh, clearly, there were serious problems with the state of nature since we constantly tried to exercise human capabilities to exit or improve upon that in a wide variety of ways. And I'm not sure that that purely has to do with psychoanalytic reasons related to lack, desire, and curiosity. I think that's definitely a part of it, but I think it really is also just the materially bad circumstances that one sees in the state of nature. Uh, I mean, one of the things that we constantly have to emphasize is take something like child mortality, right? Uh, imagine having seven, eight children just 200 years ago uh, and knowing that there's a pretty good chance that five of them will be dead uh, before you hit the grave, right? I mean, there are people nowadays who are devastated by the loss of one child. This would be a regular thing, right? The fact that that is no longer something that people expect and it becomes an exceptional moment is a kind of material progress that I think has contributed to human happiness and human flourishing. And that is just one example of the way that technology has really had a benign influence on people uh, for all the alienating qualities that emerge from it. And I think that that's probably one of the reasons why we chose to technologically innovate, because it makes us materially better off. Now, again, I think that the key question is whether we can continue to improve that way uh, create a non-alienating society empowered by technology and not cause irreparable damage to the environment. And like I said, that's the one thing about primitivism that I really think it has going for it, which is that our 
Even fully automated luxury communism, which I'd be all for if it was possible, might cause irreparable damage to the environment. And I'm not sure how to avoid that. But if we can empower ourselves without destroying the planet, then do so in a socially responsible way that's not alienating, I would say do it. Are there just sort of some wrapping thoughts? Like what lessons do we take from anarcho-primitivism? What do we want to keep? What do we want to dis, um, disregard? Back to polyamorous communist societies <laughs> today. <laughs> I mean, I think it's, I think the insight about things that make us unhappy and feel alienated in society, it's like worth thinking about those things and it's worth asking the ways in which society and technology could be contributing to that. I mean, you know, I mean, Ted Kaczynski is actually still alive, so he's probably aware of all the technological advancements, but I wonder, he must just be like, holy shit, things have just gotten so much worse. Yeah. Or right? <laughs> um, you know, a lot of the things he identifies is, is worthwhile, but obviously like, I think his solution is horrifying, which, you know, we didn't really like go into, I, I only skimmed it at the end when he talks about tactics. Right. But he, you know, he, at, at this point, at least he's like, well, I'm not saying it's good. It's gotta be violent, but like ultimately the goal has to be clear and it is like destroying civilization. And I think he might even admit that people will obviously die initially as a result of that. Right. I think he, you know, he, when you, if, if you collapse, you know, if you have a political revolution, you collapse the government, a lot of people are going to die and be really unhappy and there's going to be a lot of suffering. And he's kind of like, that's the price we need to pay. Right. And that's very much the accelerationist view. And that part, I obviously completely disagree, but I would say like, it's surprisingly worth reading. Like in, in a way I would recommend it in a way that I was surprised. Yeah. That I'm surprised that I would actually recommend it to people who are interested. Like, I think it's, it's interesting, not only just as a historical, like, cause I think before just historical curiosity to be like, what was this mass murder, you know? But there's stuff in there that makes you think, right? There's stuff in there that makes you be like, hmm, I wonder how much this is affecting my ha happiness. I wonder, you know, is that plausible? And ultimately, he makes a lot of leaps, a lot of speculative leaps where I'm just like, I don't think that's true, but it's still interesting. I'll jump in. Yeah, I mean, I think to, to Victor's point, it sort of goes without saying, but maybe we should say it uh, just so people don't don't uh, misunderstand us. I mean, yes, I think this is a violent and potentially sort of genocidal um, ideology and, and, and what he's proposing in terms of like, you know, not just political violence, but like tearing down civilization period is not something that I want to advocate for at all. I do agree that I think I would recommend this as a read though, because I think sort of strains of this, like anarcho-primitivist thought are all over the left. You know, there's different, you know, there's, there's parts of it that aren't quite as extreme, but you can look at sort of deep ecology, sort of like weird pseudo-spiritualism, maybe even some of the sort of degrowth people, the oneness of nature, the kind of um, the lifestyle leftism that sort of disre uh, just rejects modernity, science, reason in its entirety. That sort of this is the ethos of that. So if you can sort of grapple with this um, and come up with like a good critique of it, and I hope we've sort of offered you one, which is to think a little bit more dialectically, not with these sort of conceptual totalities, but think actually this is open to political contestation and there is a greater world and there is a greater freedom that is realized socially rather than, you know, fighting a lion, um, then I think <laughs> you're sort of in a good spot. Uh, you know, the sources of our unhappiness, I just don't find it plausible that it's because I can't be at risk of certain death in nature all the time. I just don't see that as being plausible. 
Well, I don't know. Matthew might be really happy if he fucks that raccoon up. Yeah, really no, yeah, that's true. I'll I'll <laughs> report back on like you know how much meaning I felt after. A I don't know if your life is at risk of death from a raccoon. <laughs> <laughs> Never know. I was going to say about, um, you know, his remarks about like, oh, we should be willing to accept, you know, billions of people dying. I mean, billions of people dying is a bit intense. Um, I will say, you know, <laughs> I, <laughs> I will say, um, I think like, you know, I would, it's nuanced, but I'll say in terms of like full on like revolutionary political violence, I oppose it because I don't think that's like an effective way to bring about a good society. I mean, I'm not sort of like deontically against political violence in the sense that if I were 100% convinced that political violence was needed to bring about like permanently bring about a world which is just much better than the world that we have right now. I would think, you know, I sort of have to some extent like a consequentialist bent and I would think like, yeah, you know, that's that's probably worth it. But like, you know, if you're going to come to me and tell me like, okay, we're doing a revolution, billions are going to die, but we're going to, you know, we're going to get a lot. And I'm like, okay, what are we going to get? And then you're like, oh, well, you're going to get to like fight lions and die of 26 from like, <laughs> you know, a scratch on your arm. And it's like, okay, well, I'll just, I'll stay in my room watching TV. Thanks. You know? <laughs> That was beautifully put. Um, I, I can't improve upon that, so I'm just going to say uh, always down for a good critique of technology. I think that we've been doing that since we're so. Let's continue to do it. But, yeah, this is just wacko. So it's not something that I'm not going to be signing off on. It's a non-starter. Yeah, I think the most generous way of, of, of saying it's not that you're just gaining, you know, risk of death, but you're gaining the vital essence of what it means to be a human being would probably be the way that he would want to put it. Yeah. But I don't think that's very plausible. Well, there's always fucking Alaska. He's welcome to go there. <laughs> well, he's in jail. No, he's he probably fine. would if he could. Yeah. <laughs> well, anybody who wants to follow in his footsteps, you know, just go there. There are a lot of fucking grizzly bears. Go to Churchill, Manitoba, for fuck's sake, you know, uh, and wrestle with a polar bear. They're a problem in the town. They might even welcome it. Fucking go there that. That was Academic Edgelords. If you haven't already, hit that subscribe button and rate and review while you're there. You can also follow us at our new Twitter feed, which is at edgelordpod. We are hosted by Ethan Xavier, Matt McManus, Victor Brizzoni, and me, Gordon Caddick. Mark Apollonio and I do the audio editing, and Dakota Coop is our graphic designer. Academic Edgelords is a production of Cited Media. Check back in every second Tuesday for new episodes. 